Our Father, we're thankful to you for not only the beauty of this day, but for the peace which reigns in our heart. We live in a world that is not very peaceful. Even in our own society, we have a great deal of domestic unrest. And yet, Father, we know that over it all, you are sovereign. And nothing can transpire that is outside of the permission of God who rules. And, and Father, we're just encouraged and, and uh, made strong in our faith, knowing that we are safely in your hands and that you have promised to be with us even to the end of this age. And Father, we ask you to bless us now this day. We ask you to be very present here this morning, to teach us through your word, to help us to understand truth and to reject error. Father, may we be truly people of the book. And we're grateful, Lord, that the Spirit of God indwells each of us to create in us a unity and a harmony by which we can understand truth and by which we can uh, impart that truth to others, not only by our words, but by the life which we live. Now, Father, we ask that in every way, every need represented in this room this morning will be brought before you and met by your power. In Christ's name, amen. We need to finish Genesis chapter 7 today and move on to Genesis chapter 8 at this horrendous pace we're moving. I hope you can keep up. I'd like to uh, go back and begin with verse 13 so that we uh, remind ourselves of at the point to which we had arrived at the end of class last week. Genesis 7:13. On the very same day, Noah, Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the waters increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. Now last week we arrived at that particular point, and we saw that uh, obviously the world was changing. Uh, we were coming to the end in the account here, of the pre-flood, the antediluvian world, as it's often referred to, and uh, moving through that transition period to the post-diluvian world, the world after the flood, in which we still live, and in which we will live until we're individually called home, the Lord or the Lord returns. We know, of course, from our own personal study of the book of Revelation, and God's promises in the book of Genesis that the next time the world meets disaster, it won't be through a flood. It'll be by fire next time, as the song says. Shem, Ham, Japheth, Noah, his wife, and their three, the son's three wives, a total of eight people, plus all of these animals. We noted that they went into the ark of their own accord, it seems to indicate here in Scripture. And then as the flood came, the ark rose on the waves. 
And as it rose higher and higher over the crest of the houses and over the crests of the forest, tops of the forest and the crests of the hills, into the world that we're going to read about now, verse 18. And the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more on the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. And the water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. You read an account like this, and you discover that God really does care for the animals and the birds and so forth of this earth. But as you study this, we realize that what happened was not done for the sake of the birds or the animals. It was done for the sake of mankind and the carrying out of God's plan. Some of you have probably read that there's uh, this individuals who established this society. I forget the name of it now. It's headquartered up in the Pacific Northwest, if I remember right. And uh, the purpose of this, this society is for uh, everybody to join this, and it's, it's a kind of... Uh, a self-destruction society. All people are to stop reproducing so that mankind will die out on planet Earth so the animals will have a chance to rejuvenate and live and be what they're supposed to be on this planet. Well, if that's what he chooses to do, more power to him. But as you study Scripture, you discover God didn't create the animals, the planet for the animals. He created the animals and all that lives on this planet for mankind. And we tend to get it all screwed up. It's, it's great to be an environmentalist, and, and I think we need to really take care of the environment. I think that's biblical stewardship. But when we start exalting animals above mankind, I think we miss the truth of, of Scripture. Of course, it's, it's truly, um, that kind of teaching is, is Hinduism, Buddhism. It's, it's this uh, kind of thinking which prevails in the New Age, that uh, man is, is no more important than, than a cricket or or any kind of a bug or a bird or anything else, and that we're all here in, on this planet together and we're all co-equal, which, of course, is not true. But we need to avoid going to the other extreme and uh, raping the earth. In this passage we just read this morning, the Scripture says that the flood prevailed and increased greatly over the earth's surface. In verses 18, 19, and 20, which we read here this morning, we discover that the word prevail is used three times. Prevailed. The water prevailed. Obviously, God is saying something important here because it's constantly being repeated. The water prevailed, prevailed, prevailed. The Hebrew word here could be translated rose mightily. Probably not placidly. I don't think the flood waters just kind of like the waters in your bathtub, you know, slowly inched their way up. As the water moved across the planet, I think it came in great waves, great tsunami, if you will, uh, tidal waves as we uh, misappropriately call them, uh, swept across the planet 
and uh, greatly stirred up the surface of the earth. The soils would be ripped off and, and carried off into su in suspension. The forests would be ripped away. And as the water moved over the planet, the little ark would seem little anyway uh, to the size of the planet, although it seemed very large to Noah and his family, would have been a little bit unstable. That is, it would seem that way inside. It was built to be relatively stable but you would have probably felt really funny inside, as we noted last week. Uh, some of you have been in the Navy. Some of you have traveled uh, on ocean liners. I, I've only spent uh, one week on a, on a Navy vessel, and that was an car aircraft carrier. And I remember being down in the uh, galley eating, and, and, you know, aircraft carriers are pretty steady, but they'll ship whatever wants to go like this. And way down there with, with nothing to orient to, no horizon to look at, it really gives you a queasy feeling, you know. This thing starts moving back and forth. You can imagine what it would be like inside the ark. Uh, it wasn't just floating nice and smoothly. It was probably rocking and rolling, <laughs> pardon the expression, uh, on the surface of the waves. And I think inside, uh, not only man but animal was a little bit queasy about that time. So the waters rose with great agitation, certainly and overcame or overwhelmed the earth, rising higher, higher, covering the hills, covering the mountains, rising to the maximum extent that we read about in this particular passage, until if, if somebody had stood on the deck of the ark or looked through the window of the ark, out at the horizon there would have not have been one hill to interrupt the horizon, a perfectly smooth horizon, in a 360-degree view, nothing but water. What it must be like, I suppose, to be in a lifeboat out in the middle of, of uh, Lake Michigan or, of course, out in the middle of the ocean, nothing to interrupt the horizon. Slowly but surely, the mountaintops all disappeared. Now, we talked a little bit last week about mountains. We have no idea, really, other than what, ex what description we have already read of the geography of uh, the earth before the flood as to what extent this earth had mountains. I believe there were mountains on the earth before uh, the flood. But whether they were to the extent that we know them today or even in the places we know them today, Lord knows. Now we know that many of the great mountain tops of the world have great sedimentary layers on them in which are found fossils, which would indicate that, of course, they were at one time below water level. Whether those sediments came down on the mountains as they existed or those mountains arose pushing up those sediments, God knows we can't say for sure at this particular point in time. It would seem like that if those mountains all rose during the time of the flood, that as they would rise into the air, those unconsolidated sediments would have kind of slipped and oozed off uh, rather than being hard enough to, to be, form the rock layers that are there as we see them. But God knows. In the latter part of verse 19, we have a double superlative given. It says, all of the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. Now, indicating there were mountains at the time the water was rising. So if there hadn't been mountains before, they had to actually be pushed up at the time the flood was occurring. 
That's a very short period of time. Now, God can do anything. But it seems to indicate that mountains already existed, and the water of the flood rose to cover all of the high mountains everywhere. Now, in the Hebrew, I understand, whenever you discover a double superlative, it almost always indicates that this is not poetic speech, but it is literal. The, the double whammy here indicates that it's talking about a literal situation. It's not just a poetic statement of some sort. And so this would seem to indicate that the water rose to cover all of the mountains that were visible, at least from the ark, wherever the ark was. Now, the Scripture tells us that the water rose 15 cubits above the highest mountain. Now, we're not going to talk today about whether that highest mountain was Mount Everest, as it is today at 29,027 feet in elevation. But at least if it didn't exist, uh, the mountains that uh, maybe we could be familiar with in studying the geography of the Near East. Why 15 cubits? Why not 10 cubits or 100 cubits? Why 15 cubits? Well, I don't know that we can answer that certainly, but it would seem to indicate that it has something to do with the ark. If you remember, the ark was built 30 cubits high. And uh, from those who have done a little experimentation, it would seem that a vessel of, of that magnitude and of that weight, when loaded, would sink to about half its height, which would mean that the ark would have drawn about 15 cubits of water. So what this seems to be implying is that the ark could float free and not ground anywhere. As it floated over the surface of the earth, it hit no mountaintops, which means the water was at least 15 cubits above the highest mountain. That makes sense, at least it does to me. The word covered, which is the last word in both verses 18 and uh, 19, or 19 and 20, I should say, uh, could be translated concealed or overwhelmed. The mountains were overwhelmed by the water. This, to me, uh, it, it can't mean that what the water did was rise up over the little mounds and hills in Mesopotamia and was kind of lapping up the slopes of the great Zagros Mountains on the one side or the Anti-Lebanon Range on the other side. No, that, that can't be what it means at all here. Because the highest peak in the Zagros Mountains, and I don't know if you're familiar with the geography of the Near East, but if you can kind of put in your mind the map of the Middle East, and, and you put the Persian Gulf over here, and, and you put the Mediterranean Sea over in this side, uh, and of course most of us are familiar something with the uh, map of Iraq now, aren't we? <laughs> we looked at it quite a bit about a year ago in the newspaper virtually every day. Uh, Iraq contains basically what was ancient Mesopotamia. To the northeast of Iraq, separating Iraq from Iran, is a mountain chain. The mountain chain is called the Zagros Mountains. The Zagros Mountain chain is several hundred miles long, running along the border between these two countries. Now today it's a relatively dry chain of mountains. There are some trees, but not a lot of trees on it. That chain of mountains rises to a maximum height of about 15,000 feet. Some snow cover, but really nothing perpetual uh, on the top of the Zagros Mountains. Now, if the Zagros Mountains rise to 15,000 feet, certainly from Mesopotamia, 
you would have seen the Zagros Mountains had they existed then as they do now. Which would have meant that the ark had to rise higher than 15,000 feet to clear the highest of the Zagros Mountains. Well, on top of that, we have, as we'll look in the 8th chapter, a reference to the fact that the, that the ark grounded on the mountains of Ararat. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Ararat later on, but let's just talk about Mount Ararat, or as Tennessee Ernie Ford says, Ararat. <laughs> uh, on the top of Mount Ararat, uh, Mount Ararat is 16,945 feet high. That means the water had to rise to at least 15 cubits above 16,945 feet, if the mountain was that height at that time, give or take a few feet. Now, water deep enough to cover a 17,000-foot mountain could hardly be the result of the Tigris and Euphrates going over their banks. It would be very difficult to contain it in a small area, unless God just drew a wall and said, okay, this is where I'm going to keep it. So you got a 17,000-foot high wall of water on one side. You walk right up and pluck a fish out, you know. Uh, seems really unlikely. Water tends to seek its own level. The Pacific Ocean averages 14,000 feet in depth. Averages. Now, as you know, it goes down to as deep as 37,000 feet out in the Marianas Trench. The Atlantic Ocean is a little shallower, averages about 12,000 feet. 17,000 feet would be a greater depth than those two oceans average today. As you think about that, and then as you remind yourself of verses 21, 22, and 23, where it says that all flesh that moved on the earth, every swarming thing that was on all the dry land, in whose, all in whose nostrils, you read through that passage and you have to think that if that is not literal, then it's got to be crass hyperbole. Oh. I mean, uh, all and everywhere and everything, uh, and, and yet you only mean a few little animals there in Mesopotamia, if that's what we were talking about. A few thousand animals died, and, and uh, the other animals that were in other lands further away didn't bother them. You know, the kangaroos were still bounding around in Australia. They didn't know anything about this. But it doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it. Personally, I feel this way. The Bible was not written by Almighty God to be understood only by scholars. The Bible was written as God's Word to the human race. Men, women, and children, wherever they can be found on planet Earth. And even though there are many things in God's Word that are hard to understand, He wouldn't be God if we could understand everything like Dick and Jane. But I, I really don't think God is going to put forth things in his word that are totally going to mislead the person who has basic solid faith in God and believes that what God says, God means. Now, I don't want to be simplistic, but I believe that science has not proven otherwise. I believe that, as if you've studied the history of this, you know that until about the 18th century, you would find very, very few people who doubted this to be literal. Very few people. Most of the non-literalists have come since the Enlightenment, when mankind suddenly became enlightened and discovered how brilliant he really was. And how he didn't really need God, and began to create God in his own image rather than he being created 
in the image of God. We really face today uh, gross arrogance on part of, the, of many in the intellectual community. People, and you find this in all disciplines, modernists feel that anybody who wrote before their period, this is often true, uh, was, was just grossly ignorant. But today we understand. And I really find it hilarious sometimes reading mostly in the area of history, as I do, where someone who lives in the 20th century feels he knows better the truth about an event that happened 2,000 years ago than the person who lived 2,000 years ago. I find that really a little bit hard to swallow. And, and yet you find this all the time, especially in, in Bible interpretation amongst the liberal community. I think what we're looking at here, they argue, of course, the liberals will argue that the, the flood was universal only in the sense that it wiped out that portion of mankind that had so deviated from God that it needed to be wiped out. And so what he did was flood Mesopotamia and kill all the people there, and of course the animals got caught in this. But, but think about it for a minute. Think of the dimensions of the ark. If, if Noah was simply going to have to save a few goats and sheep and cows and and a dog and a cat or two and a few things like that so they'd have something to start over with when he uh, came out of the flood. What's the use of building a, a, a craft so gigantic? <laughs> Just a small little boat would do, thank you, because all the other animals would either swim away or, or live in lands which aren't impacted by the flood. It, it just doesn't make any sense to think of it as other than a universal flood. The wording of these verses in 21 to 23 uh, become patently absurd if the animals could have escaped the flood or not been affected by the flood. The words in verse 23 are that God blotted out. Remember, we looked at that word before. Wiped out, it means. Utterly, every land creature and every bird on this planet except those that were in the ark. The uh, early German commentators, Kyle and Delich, handled this problem uh, the, of the nature of the Noahic flood rather succinctly. Let me read a little, uh, a, a brief quotation from, from them. However impossible, therefore, scientific men may declare it to be for them to conceive of a universal flood of such a height and duration in accordance with the known laws of nature, this inability on their part does not justify anyone in questioning the possibility of such an event being produced by the omnipotence of God. Because we can't conceive of it, because we can't grasp how scientifically it could happen, does it mean God can't do it? God can do anything. And to me, that's not taking your brain and throwing it away and saying, well, you know, God can do anything, so I don't have to think. I don't think so at all. If we start limiting the omnipotence of God, that's where the foolishness comes in. That's where we start throwing our brain away. There are other passages in the Old Testament that are hard to explain without thinking of an omnipotent God. How the world, the sun, backs up, for example, or appears to back up. I mean, the earth is thrown in reverse or whatever it does so that the shadow goes back on the steps of Ahab. Or, or the, uh, I guess it was the sundial, wasn't it? 
uh, or, or the longest day, how, how that took place under Joshua's time. How did the sun stand still in the vale of Aelon? How did it do that? Well, the people were fighting so hard, it just seemed like it took a lot longer than it did. <laughs> you probably all have read about the fact that not only do many societies of the world talk about a flood in their history, in their mythology, but many, many societies of the world, all around the world, talk about the, the extended night or the extended day, you know, the day that was missing uh, way back in time in their history. Obviously, this can't happen by natural means. The utter impossibility of stopping this planet in its rotation by any natural means you can think of without totally disturbing everything. Probably some of you have seen that old movie. It's been on TV, I think, several times. I, I can't remember the title of it, but it has to do with somebody who had his wi wished that he could have the power of God and the gods up in heaven is sort of a Greek mythological thing. Say, so, oh, let's give him that power. So he calls one day for the earth to stop. <laughs> and so the earth stops, but the atmosphere doesn't. You know, as the earth spins, the atmosphere goes with it. It's a good thing. And, and of course, at the equator, the earth is spinning at 1,070 miles per hour. Where we are, it's, it's spinning about 700 miles per hour. If you were to slam on the brakes and stop the earth, <laughs> hurricanes would seem like minor little disturbances in comparison. You know, a 700 mile an hour wind would pretty well flatten most of everything. So obviously, these events involve an omnipotent God, unless we want to throw them all into the category of mythology and not believe them. And as soon as we start doing that, you start picking and choosing, and you do what the ancient, uh, well, he wasn't so ancient, but the early, uh, a heretic Martian did, and that was to go through the New Testament and, and literally clip out the parts he didn't like. I don't like this, it's too Jewish, throw it out. He only wanted whatever was, was kind of Greek or Roman and chopped out everything else threw it away. Well, that's what people are doing today. And, and uh, I think that's dangerous. According to verse 24 of this particular passage, the flood waters held sway over the earth, for 150 days. Now, whether the flood reached its maximum level in 40 days, where the torrential rains and the, and the bursting of the underground reservoirs f drove the flood to its maximum height in, in 40 days, and then it sat at its maximum height for another 110 days, in other words, for a total of 150, or whether the, the great burst came first and it rose most of the way, and then as the rains tended to peter out and the reservoirs were largely empty, just a small amount was coming in, sort of like when you flush the toilet, right? The little ball goes down in there and at first that, that thing rises real rapidly, but as the ball gets near the time of shutoff, well, the water just rises very slowly. You know, it could have been, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but <laughs> the, the flood waters could have risen to maximum height then very, very slowly to finish off the 150 days. It doesn't really matter. Uh, which way it went. Whatever the case, at the end of 150 days, things began to change. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And Noah caused a wind to pass over the ark, over the earth, and the water subsided. 
Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. And the water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. We have now the recession. This is the beginning of the post-Diluvian era. As the, as the waters begin to subside, a new era is born on planet Earth. Think about for a minute if you can put yourself inside the ark. Through 40 days and 40 nights of tempestuous storm and torrential rain, the ark tossed about on the stormy sea. You're in this ark. The skies are dark because of the heavy downpour. You're locked in with all these animals. 40 days and 40 nights can seem like a very long period of time. But as the end of the 40 days and 40 nights came, and as the rains decreased to maybe just a light rainfall, who knows, the skies would have brightened a little. And probably the sea calmed down to some extent. I don't think it ever became smooth as glass because of the atmospheric changes that came along with the emptying of the water canopy. This must have brought some relief as the ark kind of leveled off a little bit and it became a little brighter and the rain wasn't pouring down in such heavy amounts. It must have seemed like change. But you know, after a few weeks of that, can you imagine cabin fever setting in? Have you ever had cabin fever? I don't think I ever have, but I've read about it. Happens, I guess, mostly to people like scientists in Antarctica who are down there and you only spend 30 seconds outside in the dead of winter because it's 172 degrees below zero and if you stick your finger out, it freezes solid in 10 seconds. That's an exaggeration, but it, it freezes very quickly. Uh, and, and you're locked inside this small little uh, hut with a few other persons. And uh, I hear cabin fever can really drive you nutty. Sort of like it might have been in the ark. I mean, they're, they're trapped in here, so to speak. It, it's an ark of salvation, so, you know, we have to say thank the Lord for that. But at the same time, they're in this wooden box with all these animals. Whatever state the animals were in, if, as Wickham and Morris believe, uh, as in, in their Genesis account, the Genesis flood, uh, if, if the animals were hibernating, that's, that's a very strong possibility. But still, you're in there with the animals. Must not smell real well. Kind of warm, probably, damp. You can imagine, with just this, this window running along the top up there, it probably could drive you nuts after a while. Uh, and you think about it. I, I think Noah probably did an awful lot of talking to his crew. I think he did a lot of praying. Noah was the man with the vision. He's the man to whom God had spoken directly. And he had relayed this message to his family. They had believed him and they had come this far. But we have to remember something. You and I live in a world today in which Satan's pretty busy. 
and his minions. They're all over the world working. Recently been very busy down in L.A. and other places. I think they're really largely behind what we saw happening. Who in the world could all those evil forces disturb? Everybody's dead except eight people. Now the entire evil force could focus his attention on eight people alone. Satan and all his cohorts focusing on eight people. That's all the people there were to whisper in their ear, to put evil thoughts in their minds, to tempt, to create friction. Eight people alone. And when you think about that, you'd say, what hope did they have? <laughs> well, obviously, we know what hope they had. I believe that when the enemy turns up the heat, God moves in with greater power. Scripture talks about when the enemy comes in like a flood that the Spirit of God raises up a standard against him. And I think that in this particular situation, even though the enemy was whispering in their ears and trying to create friction amongst the crew, trying to cause doubt in Noah's leadership, in his vision. After all, who knows, maybe they were going to just drift there on this shoreless sea forever. Either go berserk or starve to death one day. There are a lot of animals in the ark, but, you know, you could even perceive of the time when you'd run out of food. <laughs> After all, you know, who's going to eat crocodiles? Well, I suppose some people are. But I think God, in his mercy, was there. I think he was there in great power to shelter them in their spirits and their minds. And as I thought about this, it reminded me of a passage I'd like for us to look at for a minute in 2 Timothy. It's a passage you're familiar with. It's a passage that I learned as a young person in the King James Version, which sounds a little bit different than it does as we'll read it here in the NASB. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now in the King James, it says God has not given us a spirit of fear and ends with a sound mind. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy, call, holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. I realize it goes on there, but I want to stop there. God does not give us a spirit of timidity or fear. God gives us a spirit of power, of love, of discipline, of a sound mind, whatever way you want to translate that. It is God who has saved us. He saved us according to his plan and purpose. He saved us by, uh, by his power. And it's not by our works that we're preserved. It's not because you or I can go out and do something that we're preserved from the tragedy of this world. We're preserved because God has a purpose. 
in preserving us, and it's by His grace and His mercy. And I think the Spirit of God was there in the ark. And I think the Spirit of God kept those eight from the tragedy that would have otherwise befallen them. And I think the enemy was not able to succeed, although certainly he turned loose all of his minions here, because greater is he that is in them, he that is in us, if we're true believers, than he who is in the world. That doesn't mean, of course, that bad things don't happen to good people. Sounds like a great title for a book, doesn't it? That's a joke. There is a book by that title. <laughs> um, but it means that for God's purpose, he preserves. And they came through this sane and sound with certainly a measure of joy, if not overwhelming joy in their hearts for what God had done for them. And of course, certainly as we get a little bit later on and we can just imagine the door of the ark dropping and them looking out across this world that had just newly been revived from the flood, what thoughts must have been in their minds? For one thing, the thought would have been, this world is ours alone. There's no one else here. Could be a little frightening, but at the same time, the fact that God was with them would have been great encouragement. It's kind of interesting in the uh, beginning verse of chapter Eight, the first words are, but God remembered Noah and the beasts and, and the rest. But God remembered Noah. It sort of sounds like, doesn't it, that God did all this and then he went off to do something else. Have you ever done this? <laughs> Started a project and gone off to do another project and all of a sudden remembered that you left something half done, <laughs> half cooked or half whatever. It's what it sounds like, isn't it? But we have to remember this is written from the human perspective. For five months, there had been no, at least no recorded in, in Scripture, apparent manifestation of God's presence. It doesn't say that God walked and talked inside the ark with the eight. So they had gone through this with no seeming direct manifestation of God's favor, except, of course, the fact that they were alive in the ark and all the world had been destroyed. Finally, suddenly, when something began to happen which offered hope, it seemed as if God remembered them from the human perspective. Obviously, God had never forgotten them. God was present with them. God knew what was happening before it ever happened. And God was there the whole time. What this really means is, when it says, but God remembered Noah, is that but God began the next phase of his plan. God moved into now phase two of the plan. The waters were going to recede, and the new world was going to begin. The floodwaters had stood at or near the peak of their... Uh, elevation for 110 days. It's a long time. Pretty well takes care of most everything under the water except marine life. Masses 
of dead animals and plants would have been for a while floating in the surface and then, of course, sinking underneath, mixing with the sediment that had been stirred up and precipitating to the bottom where they would form in layers. There are those who have tried to do hydrological studies of this and to indicate exactly how wood life and plant life and animal life precipitate out. What would be the rate at which these creatures would, would fall to the bottom? Now, it's kind of interesting. Uh, our little granddaughter goes to uh, kindergarten, public school. She brought home a little paper. They were studying dinosaurs. And, and this little paper had four little drawings on it showing how a dinosaur would become a fossil. And, and this dinosaur, it, it, was, it looked to me like a Tyrannosaurus rex that they were trying to draw here. But the thing just falls over dead on its back, okay? It's lying dead on its back. And uh, then dirt comes along and covers it up. And uh, then, of course, it, the, the meat all, all rots away and it turns to, to bone. And, and then this, this layer hardens into rock, and so eventually you're able to find this dinosaur in the rock. Well, for a kindergartner, um, I suppose you could say that makes sense. But for anybody who knows anything uh, about the way things decay on this planet, it makes no sense at all. I mean, no Tyrannosaurus body is going to lie there on the surface of the earth until some dirt comes along and covers it. You know how big a Tyrannosaurus rex was? By the time dust settled on it and, and wa you know, wind and blue dirt on it and everything, I mean, the thing would be 10,000 years old before it was covered up and long been gone. I mean, most animals don't just die and roll over in the ground and, and they lie there undisturbed until something covers them. <laughs> Joke. I mean, bacteria and animal life and plant, everything feeds on whatever's dying. And it's quickly destroyed, bones and all in many cases. The chances uh, of an entire creature being encased in the rock by some kind of a natural process like that are about a jillion to one against it. Because you've got to rapidly cover something that has died to have any hope of preserving it. It's got to be rapidly covered up so that it cannot be subjected to oxidation and bacterial attack and, and man, you know, animal attack or anything else, in order for it to be preserved. Obviously, in a situation like this, we're looking at what would have been very rapid covering of gigantic amounts of flora and fauna. The theory of uniformity makes no sense at all when it comes to trying to form fossil beds. That's why many have deviated from the old theory and have come to this punctuated equilibrium thing where they they will allow small little catastrophes here and there to happen because they recognize there's no way you can cover large amounts of fossils by the normal processes. It just doesn't happen. I mean, most animals don't just kind of dig a nice hole in the ground and roll over dead in it and some other animal comes over and covers them up. It just doesn't happen that way. Uh, so it had to happen by some kind of catastrophe, especially when large masses, of, I mean, the Morrison Formation, which runs through Utah and Wyoming and other places over there, is a whole layer of rock filled with nothing but bones of dinosaurs. How in the world did all those dinosaurs just happily die in this formation? It doesn't make any sense. Unless some kind of catastrophe 
brought this about. So if you can imagine these creatures becoming waterlogged and sinking to the bottom and all the sediment that was stirred up by the violence of the storm mixing in and settling down on top of these creatures and creating layer after layer after layer. Now water which is very, very turbid. You've all heard of the Yellow River, right? The Yellow River is a major... Did we talk about the Yellow River before in here once? Anyway, the Yellow River runs through northern China. I guess we did when it came to major flooding and catastrophes, but the Yellow River is one of the most sediment-laden rivers in the world. They say that at the time of the highest flood of the Yellow River, it is 44%... No, that's not right. Every cubic foot... Get my figures right here. Every cubic foot of water contains 44 pounds of earth. which means that it's almost like um, a mud flow rather than literally water flowing. Why am I talking about this? Here we go. Thank you. <laughs> Sedimentary deposits, right. <laughs> and the reason is, of course, the water is at high volume and <laughs> if it weren't for you people, I'd be totally lost. <laughs> High volume and, 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 and rapid speed, velocity, it picks up more and more sediment. The greater the volume, the greater the velocity, the larger the pieces of material that can be moved by, by what they call traction or saltation or sediment uh, 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 suspension or whatever it might be. So as the, as the initial waters crashed across the earth and, and ripped up great amounts of material, that would have been carried up into the water. And then as the water became more placid, as time went on, that sediment would begin to precipitate out. And the last to precipitate out would be the finest of the sediment. And so the coarse stuff would be first, the big creatures would probably be first, and then the finer stuff would settle out as time went on. And you have layer after layer after layer, as you see in the Grand Canyon, of sedimentary materials, vast fossil beds created by catastrophe. Now, the underground reservoirs and the water vapor canopy had obviously both emptied themselves as time passed. Therefore, God closed them off, as we read in this passage. He shut off the windows of the heavens, so to speak, and closed off the reservoirs uh, underground because they had basically emitted all of the water anyway. And recession began to occur. There seems to be two principal means by which this water receded. And we have to remember the water is not going to leave the planet. So somehow the water has, it's covering the whole earth. The whole globe is covered. So how in the world are we going to uncover this whole globe? Well, the scripture says, first of all, that a great wind came or that a wind blew across the planet in verse 1. Uh, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth. Now because of the removal of the water vapor canopy, the atmosphere was now unstable. You will find instability both altitudinally and latitudinally. That is north-south from the equator and then as you go up in the atmosphere. You're going to find a mixing is going to occur and the great wind circulation patterns as we know them today would be created. 
the polar easterlies, the prevailing westerlies, the trade winds, and all of the intervening uh, areas of down-sinking air masses which create doldrum-like uh, situations or the great desert regions of the world. A as this happened, there would be, of course, nothing but open water. So what's to hinder the wind? As the wind starts to blow, what's to hinder it? No continents standing in the way, no great walls of mountains to block them because everything's underwater, just a smooth surface of the sea. So the wind could whip at great velocity across the surface of the earth. We know this to happen today. One of the most ferocious places in the world for wind is between the tip of South America and Antarctica. Some of you have probably read the accounts of people who, who have sailed the Strait of Magellan. As they sail down, and, and of course the difficult way to sail it is from east to west because the winds are blowing the opposite direction. And the winds have been given various titles like the shrieking 60s and the howling 50s. As the wind moves around the planet Earth, it can move unhindered around through there because between South America and Antarctica and between Africa and Antarctica, there's just open water. And as a result, the winds pick up tremendous velocities and they move through there at 60, 80, 100 miles per hour and without a storm even being involved. So you can imagine what the wind velocity might have or could have become. Such winds, of course, would create currents. You're familiar with the fact that the oceans have currents in them today, and most of the currents are the direct result of the winds that prevail across the fact, surface of the planet. The currents are mostly wind-generated. The surface ones are. Subsurface ones are generated sometimes by the movement of the surface ones, by difference in salinity, difference in temperature, such as the uh, Arctic pole, pole Arctic movement, uh, in, at deep levels. So the sea would not be calm, even at this point. Waves would be racing across the surface. But is this wind going to dry up the planet? Is a wind going to pick up thousands and thousands of feet of water and evaporate it into the atmosphere? Remember what we talked about it was either last week or before Easter, that if we were to take all of the water vapor in the atmosphere today and precipitate it out instantaneously all over the planet, we'd have one to two inches of water. Obviously, these winds were not the primary drying factor. They would pick up a little, but something else has to be primarily responsible for the recession of the water. And that is, number two, diastrophism, which has to do with the movement of the great land masses of the surface of the earth. The bulk in the drop of the water level had to be the result of geologic dislocation. Continents rose and ocean basins sank. This has to be what happened. And, of course, we see it all around the world today. At the margins of the continents, they say the great crustal plates meet, and the great Pacific Ocean and its numerous plates come up against the continental plates of the, of the continents, and at those places you have subduction zones and you have the great volcanic uh, and, uh, rings, the ring of fire, as they call it, the Circum Pacific, 
with the earthquakes and, and all of this, and of course we know something about earthquakes in California. The deepening of the ocean basins could have been at least in part the result of the emptying of all the great underground reservoirs that collapsed. Some of you, maybe all of you, have been to Crater Lake. Crater Lake in Oregon, at one time they used to say was the result of the top of the mountain blowing off. Now they say it's the result of the top of the mountain collapsing into the old magma chamber which had erupted and poured all of its contents out, leaving this gaping hole inside into which the top of the mountain fell, creating what's actually a caldera, not a crater. So as these reservoirs emptied their contents, the overlying layers could have crashed into them and thus creating depths into which the waters could flow. Is there any scriptural support for this? Well, let's look at Psalm 104 for a minute. Verse 6. Well, let's, let's begin with verse 5. He, obviously meaning God, established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. Thou didst cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the sound of thy thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose and the valleys sank to the place which thou didst establish for them. Thou didst set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Sounds to me like simply a description of continental rise, ocean basin fall, which caused the water to drain off the continents into the great ocean basin where it has been preserved ever since that time, never to transgress the boundaries again. They talk in geology about continents rising and falling throughout the so-called five billion years of, church, of, of earth history. But we has, as a human race have never observed it and recorded it except what we see here. And of course the answer is, well, mankind hasn't been uh, around that long. He's only been on the planet as an identifiable creature for uh, less than three million years. And that's, of course, just like the last few seconds in geologic history. So, you know, you always push it far enough back so that nobody witnesses it, and then you can say whatever you like. Exactly 150 days or five months after the flood began, the waters began to recede, and it says the ark grounded. The ark came to a rest, came to a resting place on the mountains of Ararat. It gives the time, the 17th day of the seventh month. You remember the flood began on the 17th day of the second month. Five months later, the ark grounds on the mountains of Ararat. Now it doesn't say landed on Mount Ararat. It says grounded on the mountains of Ararat. Ararat. Ararat is a Hebrew word. That is, it's in the Hebrew as Ararat. But the land is the land which we know as Armenia. The ancient land of Armenia, known to the ancient Assyrians as Urartu. 
The people who lived up there were the Urartu, and they seem to have been somehow related to the ancient Hurrians of the Scripture. And uh, th this region is an interesting area. If you ever get a chance to read about it or study it, it's a basaltic plateau area, sort of like the Columbia Plateau up in the Oregon-Washington area. It's a great basaltic area. Much of the elevation of the whole plateau is at between five and 6,000 feet. Then on this plateau are these peaks which rise up. There are numerous volcanic peaks up there. Ararat, Mount Ararat of today, just happens to be one, the highest of all of the volcan uh, volcanic peaks on the plateau. Now, Ararat is mentioned in the scripture other than in Genesis, as you'll notice there on your outline. Let me just quickly turn to a reference in 2 Kings, chapter 19, verse 37. And it came about as he was worshiping, this is referring to Sennacherib, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sharezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon his son became king in his place. Now, uh, Adramelech and Sharezer were two sons of Sennacherib who killed their father and then took off to the land of Ararat to be safe, and uh, Esarhaddon, a younger son who had been not involved in the plot apparently, uh, took his place. Now, this verse is also repeated in Isaiah, and so we won't look up that one. But this is a 7th century B.C. reference to the land of Ararat. Now, if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 51, there is a 6th century B.C. reference to Ararat in verse 27. This is in reference now to the upcoming demise of Neo-Babylonia. Lift up a signal in the land, blow a trumpet among the nations, consecrate the nations against her, against whom? Babylon. Summon against her the kingdoms of Ararat, Mini and Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her and bring up the horses like bristly locusts. So somehow the people of Urartu, Ararat, were involved in the conquest of Neo-Babylonia. Today we know it as Armenia, and that's the way it was translated in the uh, Septuagint because it was known as Armenia at that particular time. What's interesting is Armenia was the first large nation to adopt Christianity as its official state religion. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but it's just kind of an interesting... It's not because they say, yeah, well, the ark's up there, so we better become Christian. No. Uh, but, but it's kind of interesting that that is true. Now, let me wind it up by saying this. The ark grounded on the mountains of Ararat. We have to assume, of course, that the mountains of Ararat refer because through all history, it's always focused back to the same region. That it's the Armenia, the Urartu that we know about historically. Now, where in all that region would the ark ground? Well, the passage tells us that it grounded in the mountains of Ararat, and then two and a half months later, the tops of the highest mountains became visible. 
Now, for you to ground something, <laughs> jam this ark, and I mean, they didn't do it on purpose. They had no guidance system on the boat or propulsion system. It just grounded, okay? It's grounded on, on earth, on, on a mountain. And it takes two and a half months from that position before you see the tops of any other mountain. What does that mean? You must have grounded on the highest mountain, right? And the highest mountain is Mount Ararat. So by logical deduction, if this is what the passage of Scripture is talking about, if it's the same geological, I mean geographical location, it had to be Mount Ararat. Now, can you imagine this happening by accident? The ark's floating around up there, no guidance system. It's floating on this shoreless sea, and as the water begins to recede, it could have come down anywhere. Why on the very top of the highest mountain in the region? Well, obviously because God intended it to. And from that point on, the story, of course, will continue as we will look at it. But it's interesting to note that Mount Ararat today is a place hardly ever visited by people. Nobody lives on Mount Ararat. A few Kurdish shepherds push their sheep around down near the base of it. But we have accounts from the medieval world which tell us the mountain was forested and there were hamlets all over the mountain. But what happened was they overgrazed and over, overcut the, the mountain till today there's almost no trees in the mountain and the grass is basically gone and it's become a, a desolation largely because of human uh, changes and the whole area has become quite arid. And so it's kind of a forbidden peak. The ancient Mesopotamians thought of it as the abode of the gods. wonder why. Well, next week we'll begin looking at chapter 8, verse 6.